Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, an infectious disease expert talks about anaplasmosis, a disease spread through the bite of a tick. Prevention of those tick bites carries a lot of weight because you're not only preventing Lyme, but you're preventing some of these other, you know, similarly nasty infections as well. A public health professor tells how the pandemic is helping attract more students to a variety of public health professions. I'm sure the pandemic and the emergence of public health uh, as, a, as, a, as a key discipline in fighting the pandemic has been a, a factor. And a rabbi shares experiences he's had working in hospital spiritual care. Sometimes patients just need to have somebody listen to them empathically. All that and a visit from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll hear from a public health professor about how the pandemic is helping to attract more students to a variety of public health professions. Then, a rabbi reflects on 17 years working in hospital spiritual care. But first, what you need to know about the tick-borne disease anaplasmosis. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Many Central New Yorkers are familiar with ticks and the risk that they may carry the bacteria that causes Lyme disease. But there's another tick-borne illness of concern now. Here to help us understand anaplasmosis is Dr. Chris Paulino. He's an assistant professor of medicine and of microbiology and immunology. Thank you for making time once again for HealthLink on Air, Dr. Paulino. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. Now, earlier this summer, the state health department reported seven confirmed cases of anaplasmosis in Onondaga County, which they said was a marked increase in cases over the past five years. What do you think is driving this increase? So, you know, over the past couple of years, we've seen increased clinical cases kind of south of the city as well. Um, you know, Binghamton has had a significant increase in their, their hospitalizations from what I understand from my colleagues down there. I think it's really a matter of um, the the fact that some of our winters recently have been less severe, um, less cold, less long overall. So I think that there's an increased number of ticks that are overwintering and surviving the winter months, as well as the rodents that can transmit some of these pathogens. And I think that's kind of where we're seeing this. Well, can you tell us what anaplasmosis is? And I'm not even sure I'm saying that correctly. Yeah, you 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 got it. Um, so anaplasmosis is an intracellular back bacterial infection. So um, basically, with anaplasmosis, it'll actually infect some of your white blood cells. You know, the cells that are are actually supposed to be protecting you from infection, um, and and it can get quite severe if uh, if people aren't caught early on. So, do the deer ticks carry this same bacteria? Yeah, deer ticks are uh, like kind of a, a Swiss army knife of, of ticks in a sense because of the number of pathogens that can be carried by it. Um, you know, we, we talk about Lyme disease, we're talking about anaplasmosis, but there's several others as well. Um, so it's, it's, it's one of those things where it, you know, prevention of those tick bites carries a lot of weight because you're not only are you preventing Lyme, but you're preventing some of these other, you know, similarly nasty infections as well. So if I hear you correctly, the, the deer ticks can carry more than one of these types of bacteria. A person who gets bit by that deer tick might get both at once. There's a possibility, yeah. I, I don't see a lot of clinical um, co-infections. Um, they're probably about 5% or less clinically. Um, it's something we always try to think about when we're dealing with tick bites and you know cases of Lyme that may not be responding to therapy. Um, the good news is when it comes to anaplasma, you know, the, the treatment, um, you know, specifically doxycycline, which we use for Lyme disease is, is the, you know, the magic bullet for anaplasmosis. It's kind of the, the go-to drug for that. Now, is there a time of year when ticks carrying anaplasmosis are most likely to be biting? So, you know, the, the ticks are going to be active really as soon as the, the snow melts all the way up until when the snow starts to fly again. So, 
you know, you can imagine our tick season can be anywhere from like March through December in many cases. Um, you know, there are different types of ticks that are, uh, or different stages of the tick, the deer tick that are going to be active at certain times of the year. So generally speaking, um, the nymphs, the smaller ticks are going to be more active in the spring and early summer, and then throughout the summer and then into the fall, you're going to see some of the adult ticks that are going to start to be more active. The, those nymphs are, are really the more dangerous of the, the ticks because we're we're going to have these smaller ticks that are going to be harder to identify. They're going to be harder to detect on a person. And because of that, they can stay attached longer and have an increased risk of transmitting something like Lyme or anaplasmosis. Well, let's talk about the symptoms. How soon would symptoms appear and, and what are the most common symptoms? Yeah, so as you know, in comparison to like Lyme disease where symptoms may not really present, you may not have a rash for several weeks after a bite. Some cases, anaplasmosis can present in, in days. Um, you know, I tell people about five days, give or take up to maybe two weeks is when you'd start to see some symptoms associated with it. Um, we, we talk about anaplasma having a typical tick-borne presentation. Um, so tick-borne diseases oftentimes will present with high fevers, headaches, general muscle aches. Um, anaplasma has a specific tendency to cause a lot of upset stomach. So people can have poor appetite, nausea, some vomiting, and in some cases can also have some diarrhea as well. Um, you know, a lot of symptoms that unfortunately kind of mimic what we see with some of the COVID cases. Does anaplasma do lasting damage to the body? No, um, it, you know, it's, it's generally one of these infections where if you get it, it kind of hits hard up front and can be very, uh, very severe. People can go into multi-organ failure and there have been deaths. Um, but generally speaking, once you treat, um, you know, there's, there's no significant risk of kind of chronic relapse or chronic symptoms like we see with some of our Lyme cases. Now in immunocompromised individuals, there may be a potential risk. Um, I've read of some, some uh, relapsed cases of ehrlichiosis, which is kind of a, uh, a very close relative to anaplasmosis that can occur in somebody who's going through like leukemia treatment and chemotherapy. Uh, but generally speaking, once you're treated with anaplasma, you, you're not gonna have persistent issues. How uh, is it diagnosed? Is there, a, is there a blood test for it? Yeah, there's actually a couple of blood tests and, you know, you can potentially see evidence of the infection on a blood smear. It's not a common way that we do the testing, uh, but it is a possibility. Um, the probably the more common ways to do this would be to either draw a serologic test where you're looking at antibody responses to anaplasma, which much like any serologic test, Lyme included, Early in the course of the disease, you may not have the antibodies there. So a lot of times I'll have people come back to the clinic four to six weeks later to do that confirmatory test. And you'll see they'll go from zero antibodies to major titers uh, that are quite high, showing that we, we did indeed have anaplasmosis. Now, early in the course of the infection, you can actually do a PCR test on the blood where you're looking uh, specifically for the DNA of the bacteria. So I oftentimes will order both. And because, you know, early on, especially if somebody has been put on doxycycline early, their, their, their PCR may actually become negative and you may not, you may not pick up the diagnosis. So I'll, I'll order both of those tests in many cases. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Assistant Professor Dr. Chris Paulino about anaplasmosis. It's a disease that's transmitted to humans through the bite of a tick. Now, you already mentioned that the recommended treatment is doxycycline. Um, that's, a, I guess, a common antibiotic. Mm -hmm. What if someone is not treated for this? Will the body fight this off on its own, or do, do people need treatment? Generally speaking, you're going to need treatment. This isn't something that's going to hide out. Um, you know, the cases, um, like I said, they present very quickly after the tick bite. They come on very, uh, very intensely. Uh, fever is 103, 104 degrees in an adult, which you know you can imagine is not, not pleasant. Um, headaches are pretty severe, um, you know. And if if they are not treated and you're not thinking about it, people can end up in the ICU. And and as I said, you can have some deaths um, in about 10% of patients if they're not treated promptly. 
Well, I'd like to ask you a little more about prevention. What do you tell people is the best way to avoid tick bites without, I mean, people want to get out and enjoy, you know, central New York and go on hikes, but how can they do that um, and avoid the ticks? Yeah, so, you know, you just have to, you have to do your due diligence. Um, if you're going to go somewhere where there's potentially ticks uh, around, so hiking, uh, going to parks, anywhere where there's high grass. I, I joke with some of my patients, if you're not a great golfer and you're spending a lot of time in the rough, you need to use some bug spray of some sort. Um, generally speaking, I recommend using something on the skin. Um, I am a big fan of DEET products. I've always, um, I've always uh, done well with those. I think they have, um, you know, the most data behind them from a tick and mosquito repellent perspective. Um, but I also think that, um, you know, it's, it's fairly well tolerated for most people. Now, if for some reason, somebody doesn't like DEET or they have a sensitivity to DEET. Picaridin is a close second for me. Um, there are a couple brands that are out there that do have picaridin containing products. And I usually like to do 20% picaridin or maybe 25% to 35% DEET. Um, as far as other topicals, there are others that are out there. They may be less effective and you may need to reapply them more frequently. Um, oil of eucalyptus is, is an option for somebody who wants more of a, an organic approach. Um, but again, you just need to make sure that you're, uh, you're applying regularly, um, you know, reapplying when you're outside for a prolonged period of time. And then after you're done doing what you're doing, you want to make sure you do tick checks. It's really important, um, you know, my, my children spent, you know, an hour outdoors in Massachusetts a couple months back, and we found four ticks on them within the hour that they were outside. So you need to really be uh, thinking about that. And then you also want to try to take a shower within about two hours of coming in and launder your clothing and put it on high heat in the dryer. Um, it should kill any residual ticks that may be on there. And, uh, you know, it will help kind of uh, wash away any ticks that have not attached yet. The only other thing I would mention um, for somebody who does a lot of work outside or hiking, using permethrin on the clothing. Um, it's a clothing spray you can use, or you can actually buy clothing that have permethrin um, uh, products embedded in them already. Um, that's actually been shown in a randomized clinical trial recently to decrease the number of tick bites pretty substantially. Um, so I use that on any kind of yard work clothing that I have and uh, anything I'm gonna use for hiking purposes. If you do find ticks on your body, what do you advise about tick removal? So, you know, there's a lot of kind of uh, approaches to tick removal that I think uh, may actually do more harm than good. I generally uh, tell people to get uh, fine uh, needle nose tweezers, grab the tick at the base uh, next to the skin and pull straight out. Um, if you try to burn the tick off, if you kind of cover it with Vaseline, it may get the tick to come out. Um, but you're also irritating the tick and there's a greater chance it's going to regurgitate more sal uh, salivary proteins and, and other potential pathogens and things into your skin. Um, so it's probably not a great idea. Um, take the tick off as soon as you find it. Um, the longer the tick is attached, the more likely something could potentially be transmitted. And then I would talk to your, your primary care provider. Um, you know, there are some prophylactic regimens that you can use, um, you know, doxycycline, has been shown to decrease the risk of Lyme transmission. Um, so that's something that you can uh, reach out to your primary care about. Should you save the tick? Um, you know, there. this is a controversial com uh, um, question because, you know, if you look at the guidelines, they don't really recommend, um, you know, testing the tick necessarily. But um, I do recommend that patients uh, send any ticks that they have into our lab here at Upstate, Dr. Tangamani's lab. Um, and, and the reason for it is he gets that data and he can compile it and provide providers like myself with some kind of real-time information as to what the trends look like. So I knew over the past two years that our anaplasma and babesiosis rates in the ticks were increasing. So seeing an increase in anaplasmosis clinically is not shocking to me. Um, the other thing is, if you have the tick sent in, you potentially can get some data regarding the, the pathogens that may or may not be in there. And um, in some cases, it can provide some peace of mind um, if you're worried that you might have gotten bit by something that had an infection in it. Um, and it also provides your, your providers with at least a little bit of a hint as to what may be going on if, uh, if your 
if you take tested positive for anaplasma or Lyme disease or something like that. I want to let listeners know they can find out more about that tick submission at a website, nytics.org. Um, and before we wrap up, are there other tick-borne diseases to be aware of in central New York at this point? Yeah, so actually uh, looking at Dr. Tangamani's lab um, data, there, there seems to be more ticks with babesiosis, which is a parasite that can be found inside the ticks. Um, it presents very similarly to malaria in a sense um, because it invades the red blood cells. Um, we have not seen a ton of Babesia cases, and I think that may be partly due to the, the need for it to be attached a bit longer. So if people are identifying that they have a tick bite, they're able to pull it off before there's a transmission. Um, it's interesting that we have fewer ticks with anaplasma that I've seen uh, per his data, uh, but more cases, and I'm wondering if it has something to do with that. Um, there are other tick-borne diseases. Um, ehrlichiosis can be spread by uh, some species by deer ticks, others by uh, uh, other ticks like the lone star tick, which we're starting to see in New York. Um, and then there are other kind of rare um, uh, pathogens like Powassan virus, which is a devastating neurologic infection, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, and the dog tick. Um, these are all potentially things that you can see. Um, but just uh, luckily for us, not super common at this point. Well, this has been very informative. Thank you so much to Dr. Chris Paulino. He's an assistant professor of medicine and of microbiology and immunology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. Why so many students are exploring careers in public health. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. More and more students are considering careers in public health as a result of the pandemic. Dr. Christopher Morley is my guest. He's the chair of Upstate's Department of Public Health and Preventive Medicine. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Morley. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to be here. Now, is it true that you have the largest incoming class ever this year? And do you think the increased interest is in response to the pandemic? Uh, yes and yes. Um, so we have a, a, a relatively young program. We've only been, uh, we graduated our first class about 10 years ago. Um, and as a, as a program that's run by a department within a college of medicine and not a full school of public health, we are um, fairly small. So uh, I offer that as context for the numbers I share, but we actually have uh, about 32 students starting. We're actually still in the process of, of uh, processing some final last minute applications and we'll see who matriculates but we're looking at, at breaking the, the 30 barrier, which we've never done before. So tell us about the program. Are all of these students working on a master's degree in public health? And does this require a full-time commitment or do you have some part-time students? So most are working on a master of public health, um, which is a 42 credit degree. The, uh, there are some who are working on a certificate of advanced study, which is a smaller uh, credit load. That's about 15 credits, but those credits are all full graduate credits. A certificate of advanced study is approved by the New York State Department of Education. And so people can complete the certificate and then transfer all of those credits into an MPH, ours or in theory, uh, any other MPH program because they're full, it's a full graduate certificate and, and, uh, and an education, a real educational program. But most of our students are completing the MPH. Some are completing it as part of a joint degree program, the MDMPH. They are doing it full time. Others are doing uh, this as a pathway into the MD. Uh, program that's a special pathway it's called the Public Health Scholars Program. Uh, they are doing it full time. Um, so our general um, uh, standalone MPH students are in one of two concentrations. They uh, typically can go either full or part time. Most of those students too are doing it full time. We have about five part timers uh, um, in, in the program, and they tend to fluctuate in and out of full to part time depending on what they can do with their workload. Now, you mentioned MDMPH. So, is that um, people that are studying to become doctors? They're in the medical school, but they're also going to do a concentration in public health as well. At That's, the same right. Time. That's right. That's right. It's about an, an extra. It's an extra year of study. They do most of their MPH coursework 
um, at this point in a year zero. Uh, other students in, in years past have done it uh, by breaking up their medical training. We've made a whole program move to um, basically strongly encourage people to start with what we call a year zero. Med school is, medical school is four years and doing a, a fifth year at the start of their, their career here at Upstate, doing um, the, the bulk of their MPH coursework. So about about 36 of their credits before they start medical school. And then we have about six and a half credits that we recognize from medical school that we we, uh, we recognize as part of the MPH as well. Frankly, our department teaches the, some most of the courses that we recognize from the, M, from the MD program. So uh, they end up walking with two degrees, the MD and the MPH. Well, I'd like for you to tell us about the curriculum. And I've heard a master's of public health described as something like a master's in business administration, but in healthcare. Is, is that accurate? Oh, no, I would actually disabuse that. Um, so uh, while we do, part of our curriculum does involve um, program planning and evaluation, as well as um, policy and administration, those are skills that teach people um, about about healthcare organizations and, and service organizations, but that's not really the core. We, we there's a there's an eclectic brand of skill uh, mix of skills, and the focus really um, for every uh, the core of, of public health really are teaching students epidemiology and biostatistics. Um, we also teach them uh, the social and behavioral dimensions of, of public health. So that's applying social science and behavioral science models to how to plan interventions and what to expect, how to interpret results. We teach them about environmental health and, um, and we, we teach them uh, research methods and advanced statistics and, 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 uh, and epidemiology. Now there are different uh, tracks. We have different concentrations. We have one in, uh, that's presently called data and analytics where we, uh, have students study um, advanced epidemiology, biostatistics, and, and uh, data management. And we have a, a, a concentration that's intended for our MDMPH and a special pathway into the MD program called the, called the Public Health Scholars Program. Those students um, take a, a course from me, actually, in biopsychosocial primary care that basically focuses on um, taking public health skills and applying them to the physician-patient dyad. Um, and uh, we have a global health, a new global health and translational science concentration that introduces students to um, work in global health research and 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 uh, service dissemination. And those students uh, have a, a similar uh, set of courses, but they also do what what all students do, and that's an applied practice experience. The global health students do theirs uh, typically in overseas uh, sites. Um, that's a brand new concentration. We just accepted our first cohort into that concentration. In addition to those classes, are there electives that students choose from? There are. We, uh, as, as with many professional master's programs, there's not a lot of room for electives, but we do offer electives where students can take additional advanced training. So students who are in concentrations where, say, uh, uh, advanced biostatistics isn't required, they can take the advanced biostatistics, but we also have electives in public health ethics and in uh, caring for people with disabilities. We have electives in um, uh, infectious disease epidemiology and chronic disease epidemiology. Um, so students can add one or two classes in areas that they'd like to focus. But like most professional masters, we have a pretty circumscribed curriculum if people want to get done on time and finish those 42 credits efficiently. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith speaking with Dr. Christopher Morley. He's the chair of Upstate's Department of Public Health and Preventive Medicine, which has seen a spike in student interest in its educational programs since the pandemic. What is the Public Health Scholars Program? I'm so glad you asked me about that. The Public Health Scholars Program is one of uh, three special pathways into our medical school uh, MD's program, MD program. The, uh, the special pathways are ways that students who come from underserved backgrounds and have um, uh, a, a fair likelihood of succeeding in medical school, but uh, but had some some things that they needed to uh, correct on their applications, um, a way to basically uh, work through and, and and essentially demonstrate readiness for medical school. Uh, we've got a, a med tech program and a, a in, in a master's in medical technology, and we we have. Um, a, a Buffalo uh, University of Buffalo post baccalaureate program, which are other options. 
but the, the MPH program participates uh, through the public health scholars pathway. Those students are selected when they apply for medical school and they're selected because they have one or two things to correct. And uh, that gives them the opportunity to demonstrate preparedness for uh, advanced study by doing most of the MPH program. And we've had a lot of success getting students into the MD program. Um, we've, we have uh, about six to seven students in the program right now doing it. We just um, sent four students into medical school through this pathway, uh, four students in the year prior, and we have about 15 students in overall in the MD program who came through this pathway uh, by doing the MPH coursework first. Uh, we're real proud of that and it's a path, it's a pathway to help diversify medicine and it's really important to us. Do you have any examples of lessons or projects that happened during the pandemic that made use of what was happening live in the real world? Oh, absolutely. And it was bi-directional. Um, not only were we taking lessons that we were doing typically uh, things we had done that day, our, our uh, faculty and and, uh, and staff were, were deeply engaged in both our institutional and community responses to the pandemic. Um, but very often we were able to turn around and, for example, if we were doing surveillance and producing uh, graphs or information or projections or, 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 um, or other uh, artifacts from our work, we were able to take that directly to the classroom. And that was a lot more effective than, you know, than, than showing people something historical or, or, or made up from a textbook. We were showing them stuff that we were uh, employing um, in real time. And those are the skills they were learning in the classroom. We were showing them that this was actually uh, in, in, uh, in use right at the, right at the time. And I say it was bi-directional because those students were, were also helping us. Um, we had uh, students help us. Uh, MPH students help us do a conduct a survey of uh, our own workforce at Upstate on vaccine uh, attitudes as the vaccines for COVID-19 were rolling out. We did one round in December and one round after the vaccines were here, uh, just to study vaccine hesitancy and vaccine attitudes. And that was uh, facilitated and, and helped by a couple of MPH students. Um, we had students engage in, in information collection around what hospitals were doing, what our own hospital was doing, um, and support a variety of efforts throughout the pandemic. Um, and so it was a real learning learning exercise as well as a, an, a, a, a true help. Uh, our students across upstate really pitched in and helped through the pandemic, and our MPH students were certainly a part of that. And I'm, I'm really, uh, really thrilled to be able to say that. Now, what sorts of jobs would someone with a master's of public health be qualified for? Where do your graduates end up? So, uh, with the eclectic skill set, a lot of different places. Uh, the most logical place that they're aimed is typically the, the uh, a county, municipal, or state health department. But that's not it. I mean, there's a lot of things they can do there. But uh, some students end up going on and graduating and getting employed at, uh, you know, health health organizations, health service organizations, in uh, health care facilities. Some of them work at uh, policy think tanks. Many of them even work in, um, you know, in population health arms of hospitals. And uh, we've got several students working on in, in, in hospitals, and, you know, analyzing population health data. And another uh, ripe area is that students go on and uh, graduate and become research coordinators for a wide variety of different types of research projects. We've got students right now employed in our Global Health and Translational Science Institute. We've got students employed in a number of other uh, studies. Uh, we've got a, a alumni in the emergency department, and I can go on with the list, but these students are coordinating research studies, managing data, uh, managing processes, managing um, regulatory processes, helping do analyses, helping write papers. Uh, runs the gamut. They've got a wide skill set and they employ them in, in, a, in a lot of different ways. Now, what would you advise a high school student who's interested in public health to pursue in college? What kind of undergraduate degree would, would be good? Sure. So, one, one thing I'd like to disabuse is that um, when, once you're in public health, we are much more of a social science discipline than a biological one. So, people don't actually need a clinical background nor do they need advanced training in, in biology. I mean, if you're talking about diseases, it certainly helps, but the way we analyze them, we have much more in common watching things play out as they proceed through people and as policies 
or as, as, as individuals transmit diseases to one another. And those tend to be social processes as much as they are biological. Are there particular skills that would be good to have in terms of math or science or mapping, anything like that? So uh, coming in with some background in statistics, as, you, as <laughs> some of our conversation might imply, having an, an undergraduate course in statistics is good. Um, additionally, um, having some concept of, of social research, uh, taking a, a medical sociology course or medical anthropology course would be good. Having some idea of the policy arena. So uh, political science or policy studies are good places to look. And so if you can do those things with a focus on health, that's even, that's even better. Um, so uh, quantitative sociology, um, uh, um, even uh, behavioral sciences like psychology are good primaries, especially for the types of research designs we, we implement and, and study. Um, additionally, I'd suggest that people with um, humanities backgrounds uh, come in good because they, they sometimes they don't have all the math prep, but they have uh, great strong writing skills because very the, the other end of doing an analysis is you have to tell people about it and being an effective communicator is also very useful. So writing uh, math and social science skills uh, and understanding of the social and behavioral sciences and, and policy studies are really uh, some of the substrates of, of public health as much as uh, any other science. I wouldn't dissuade people with with bio biological or environmental science backgrounds coming to us. Um, they thrive in our program as well. It's just not absolutely necessary. And in fact, um, some of those some of the lessons they learn about social sciences are are new to those people. So um, that's what I would stress. What's the application process like? Well, um, we we participate in what's called a, a common application. Ours is, is called SOPHIS, S-O-P-H-A-S. And we do have a link on the web page. Uh, if you find our, our program, you know, upstate.edu slash MPH, you can find, uh, I, I think you can find the application page pretty easily. And there's a two-step process. You go through SOFIS and that um, collects the, the primary portion of the data. And then we have a secondary application. Um, we do require transcripts um, and the both the physical copy of the transcripts uh, certified as well as um, the data from the transcripts entered into SOFIS are both necessary. Um, we do not require a, uh, a, a GRE or any other standardized test. We dropped that requirement a few years ago. We do a holistic um, review of the applicant. So we tend to emphasize um, the, what, what's on the transcript, what courses students have done rather than just the GPA. Um, and we also look closely at uh, a couple of things. We ask them for an essay and a public health statement, not terribly long ones, but uh, a brief uh, public health statement, what they, what they think is, a, a, is an important project and where they think they're gonna go, as well as a, a public health essay. And we ask for three letters of recommendation. Typically, we'd like those letters of recommendation to come from academic sources that say they can do the work and occasional professional reference is good as well. Um, but we do ask for three letters of recommendation um, from professional or academic sources. Um, so if you have your transcripts lined up and you're a decent writer and you've got people who will vouch for you, um, professional references who will say that you're, you're a good candidate for a public health study, you're set to apply. Oh, well, this has been a very good overview. Thank you so much to Upstate's Chair of the Department of Public Health and Preventive Medicine, Dr. Christopher Morley. This has been host Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, Rabbi Irving Beagle is retiring from hospital spiritual care. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today, I'm talking with Rabbi Irvin Beagle, who's recently retired from spiritual care at Upstate University Hospital after 17 years of service as a chaplain. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Rabbi. Thank you, Amber. I'm delighted to be with you. I'd like to start by asking you to talk about the role of spiritual care at the hospital. Is the service offered to all patients or only those who are hospitalized for a long stay? Well, you know, as chaplains, we understand 
that whether a patient anticipates a short stay or a long stay or uh, is just coming for an outpatient procedure, the patient is having some anxiety that uh, they have been uprooted from their home, from all the familiar routines of their life, and uh, they've come to the hospital, which is a whole different world where they've lost some of their independence. And often um, they're not sure how long they're going to be here. So the job of the chaplain is to uh, offer support to every single patient. Now, uh, chaplains don't always have the ability to get to every patient in the hospital, but certainly if a patient or a family member asks to see a chaplain, the chaplain will be there, regardless of how long they expect to be at the hospital. So as one of the chaplains, what were your responsibilities or what was, what was your day like? Did you Did you wait for a phone call from someone who needed you or did you have rounds that you made? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, for the last uh, number of years, the main focus of my work was to visit Jewish patients. And I did that routinely. On the days when I was at the hospital, I would make rounds and see all of the Jewish patients who were in the house and all those who wanted a visit at least. Patients always have the option of uh, saying they don't want to visit. We always come to the patient's door and ask for permission to enter. That's for a moment, that is their home, and uh, we respect that. So uh, in in visiting patients, uh, my, my function is to offer support, and particularly with Jewish patients, I share an identity with them. I'm Jewish, and uh, in the case of Jewish patients, they're obviously Jewish, which establishes a connection to, uh, to begin with. As a Jewish chaplain, there are things that I can offer them because of my particular background, but the, the main focus, again, is to offer them support uh, during a it can be a difficult time. Do you interact much with family members or relatives of the patients? Yeah, that, that's a great question because we understand that when a patient comes to the hospital, they're certainly affected by the experience, but everyone close to them is also affected. Families may have anxiety, families uh, may have uncertainty. Families may even have spiritual questions. Why is this happening to somebody I love? And uh, we, we see care of a family as being very much a part of what chaplains do. Uh, uh, during the pandemic, this became even more important than usual because there were times, as we know, when families were not allowed to come into the hospital at all. And uh, I found myself making phone calls to families. One, uh, once the family understood that I was calling not to talk about the patient, but to ask how they were doing, they usually appreciated that contact very much. And like you said, during the pandemic, I, I know that was more important when people you know, couldn't be at a, a loved one's bedside. Yes, it was. I hope that uh, one of the things which results from that is that kind of outreach to families will be continued long after the pandemic is gone. And we, of course, hope that will happen very quickly. Families uh, often needed to talk. And family uh, family members often had a lot of uh, uh, anxiety and really needed somebody to take the time to listen to them. And as a chaplain, I was fortunate to be in a position of being able to listen to what they said and being able to respond in an empathic way to them. That makes me wonder about hospital staff. Do you ever have members of the hospital who seek your counsel as, as chaplain? Well, I know that um, staff often does seek out chaplains. I can't remember a specific incident where a staff member came to me, but I can tell you that any time I was on the floor uh, to see patients, I was very sensitive and very much aware that 
the staff uh, was experiencing stress and uh, that they had been working very hard and that they needed uh, to know that uh, they could get support. So uh, sometimes that might be as simple as my speaking to a staff member and saying, how is your day going? Uh, and establishing contact in that way. Uh, but I, I am sure that uh, some of my colleagues have probably had more extensive experiences with staff uh, than I can recall. As a rabbi, did you ever provide spiritual care to people who weren't Jewish or people with no religion? Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, I have done that. And as a professionally trained chaplain, uh, I know that my function is not to promote a particular way of looking at the world or a particular religious tradition. My uh, function is to uh, offer support in ways that are meaningful to that particular patient and uh, explore, uh, exploring with them the sources of their strength and uh, facilitating uh, the things that will help them is uh, what I am able to do for those patients. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Rabbi Irvin Beagle from Upstate University Hospital's Department of Spiritual Care. What drew you to spiritual care? Well, for many years, I served as a rabbi in a congregational setting. It was what they call a pulpit rabbi. Uh, there came a point uh, when I felt I needed to do something a bit different. I had always enjoyed the personal contact I had with people. I had always enjoyed uh, the opportunity to offer support to people who were going through difficult times. And uh, coincidentally, uh, at uh, just about the time I was uh, considering those things, uh, uh, Reverend Culbertson, managing chaplain at, at Upstate, uh, called me and asked me if I could uh, help out with uh, some chaplaincy at one of the facilities in town. Uh, subsequently, I uh, took four units of clinical pastoral education, and uh, that work with the, together with the uh, clinical uh, cl clinical work uh, that was part of that under supervision uh, helped me to be ready to fulfill the obligations of a chaplain. Well, I wonder if you're able to leave your work at work, and if so, what strategies you use for that? Because you're potentially in a crisis situation with the people you're helping all day. I wonder if you're able to walk away from that. Sometimes it's very hard. Uh, uh, the things that help me, though, is that I come home to family. I have a regular uh, routine of religious practice in my life, including prayer three times a day. And... Uh, uh, th those things are very helpful to me in uh, being able to leave, at least to some extent, uh, work uh, at work. Well, I'd like to get your advice about what family and friends can do when a loved one is hospitalized. What can they do to help? Well, the most important thing, I think, is to be there. That. <laughs> Uh, being present with a patient uh, makes a, a big difference. Uh, but there, there are other bits of advice I would give as well. First, first of all, understand that the patient is in the hospital because of a medical issue of some sort, but their healing uh, requires concern with their spiritual well-being as, as well. Uh, patients uh, have anxiety, patients uh, may uh, feel disconnected from community. There, there are many uh, aspects to the, the spiritual issues that a patient may have. So be aware of that, be sensitive to that. Uh, next, I, I think families need to acknowledge their own feelings about uh, what is happening. Uh, and last and perhaps most important, 
they need to know that chaplains are available to help them through all this, that uh, the chaplains are part of the treatment team at the hospital, and uh, a simple call to the spiritual care office will bring a chaplain to the bedside to speak with them. In your 17 years as a chaplain, what things have you seen that help lift a person's spirits if they're hospitalized? Sometimes patients just need to have somebody listen to them empathically. Uh, patients have, uh, you know, many, many concerns. Uh, every patient is a little bit different. There's no one size fits all when it comes to assessing or uh, intervening with a patient to help them. Uh, I, I, one example, I can give you two examples of things that have been helpful to patients. As a Jewish chaplain, I, I'm able to draw on Jewish tradition and Jewish sources when I meet particularly with Jewish patients, but often with other patients. Uh, and I've had uh, one of the Jewish traditions uh, is that in a time of illness, we recite Psalms from the book of Psalms. We all know the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, but in fact, there are 150 Psalms to choose from, uh, depending on what's most appropriate to the situation. So often with a patient's permission, I will uh, recite one of those Psalms. Sometimes I say it in English, sometimes in Hebrew, sometimes in Hebrew and English. One of the fascinating things that I've discovered is that sometimes a patient who may not identify as being religiously observant will find great comfort in hearing the psalm read in the Hebrew language, the original Hebrew. It helps them, I believe, to feel more connected to a tradition helps them feel more connected perhaps to God. It uh, helps them to identify with something which is uh, larger than what is happening in their life at the moment. Uh, and there's, a, there's another aspect uh, as well that I, I did, really do want to uh, mention. And uh, this is uh, an area where I can be particularly helpful with Jewish patients. Uh, also with other patients, uh, the recognition that decisions about medical care are often excruciatingly, excruciatingly difficult, uh, but I encourage patients and families to understand that these decisions are certainly uh, based on medicine and science, but they are not only medical decisions, they are ethical decisions. And for many of us, these are religious decisions because religious traditions have a lot to say about the sanctity of life and how we, uh, and how we deal with medical issues. Uh, I recall one uh, incident a number of years ago when a Jewish family had requested a visit from me uh, because they wanted some guidance about making uh, decisions on medical care. I think it was an end of life situation and these decisions were extremely hard. Uh, I came to see them, but uh, I came along with a group of clinical pastoral education students because this was part of their learning. And of course we had the family's permission to have them sit in. I was able to talk about the values of Jewish tradition to them. And I think that although there were no uh, easy answers, I think that by the time we finished talking, they, uh, their mood had lightened at least a little bit. Thank you to Rabbi Irvin Beagle, and congratulations on your retirement from spiritual care at Upstate University Hospital. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air.
And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Barry Peters lives in Durham and teaches in Raleigh, North Carolina. He uses a medical visit to capture a beautiful childhood memory and perhaps aid in his own healing in the lovely poem, Body Surfing. My brother and I wade into waves, child arms raised to the August sky, jumping our waists until the frigid tide ices our groins, waiting for the first big one to ride. Here it comes, he says, and we turn our backs to the horizon, undertow suck of sand and seaweed around our legs. I dive, briefly buoyed, cradled in cresting foam, then suddenly I'm thrust ahead, torpedoed toward land. Eyes closed, face scraping bottom, legs akimbo, somersaulting in aquatic thunder and darkness until I'm dispatched, spitting salt water, prostrate on broken shells and wet beach. It wasn't the last time nature would have its way with me, I think, 50 years later, as I'm submarined into the MRI scanner, riding the waves toward another distant shore. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, how surgery and neurostimulators can treat adult epilepsy and what's important to know about inflammatory bowel disease. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Music